0: Doctor seems to be circling the parking area now. I guess it's looking for a place to land. No, something just came out of the back of the helicopter. It's uh, a dark object. Uh, <laughs> perhaps a skydiver plumbing to the earth from only 2,000 feet into the air. <laughs> the second, the third. So no parachutes yet.
1: Those can't be skydivers. I can't tell just yet what they are,
0: but. Oh my god, they're turkeys! just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a buddy, duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission.
1: I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I
0: got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line.
1: It's at this point that you'll want to start taking
0: notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And what is our trope for today, Amy?
1: It's Thanksgiving, Jay!
0: Yep, Thanksgiving episodes, one and all. Uh, We decided to make this kind of a potpourri. We didn't drill down into any specific subtropes like we did for halloween uh we did put out sort of a general inquiry on instagram tell us some of your favorite thanksgiving episodes and we got a lot of cheers and friends which no one will deny both have classic thanksgiving episodes but we've talked about them a lot because of our will they won't they expeditions so we're not covering those but we did get requests for WKRP and King of Queens And we uh, did some Digging and rounded it out with some Other ones so what are our Thanksgiving Episodes all
1: right we've got A classic WKRP in Cincinnati season one episode Seven turkeys away Seinfeld Season 6 Episode 8 The Mom and Pop Store, The King of Queens Season 6 Episode 9 Thanks Man, and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia Season 9 Episode 10 The Gang Squashes Their Beefs.
0: Yeah, so Thanksgiving, what is your real life attitude towards thanksgiving is this a big holiday for you
1: yeah i feel like it's lower stress than christmas because you know or or the hanukkah time because like the presents and having to have all these like traditions and whatever i feel like that's and then halloween it just is it's always about like go and find a costume and get this and do that and there's parties and uh, and thanksgiving is just like sit at home and have a meal
0: yeah, I mean, it It depends. I think a lot of people have different perspectives on that. One of the reasons why Bob's Burgers is always fun with Thanksgiving is because that takes the point of view of the person who's responsible for cooking and all the craziness that goes into that. But uh, yeah, I want to give a shout out to one of my favorite pop culture Thanksgiving things, which isn't a TV show, but the Thanksgiving scene in Adam's Family Values, I think, speaks to what I find a little uh, troubling in the modern world about Thanksgiving. It gets into the dark side of the history of Thanksgiving. If you remember the scene in Summer Camp where Wednesday Adams comes out and has, you know, the Native Americans revolt and, you know, John Smith is beheaded and everything. What I'm getting at is I don't want to totally be a Jesse Spano about it and turn everything into, you know, a political protest. But I definitely am aware of the fact that Thanksgiving has its origins in some pretty false, <laughs> you know, uh, impressions of our history. And just in general, there's a lot of problematic and sort of icky historical stuff that is wrapped up in this weird narrative that we've latched onto and built this holiday around. Yeah, um,
1: absolutely. And I think the the thing that I kind of keep in my mind as I feel like all of us are growing and evolving and learning is there are certain kernels of wisdom that come out of you know, even horrible things. So the idea of giving being grateful, giving thanks for something that you have, or family or friends or whatever it is. And, you know, having a meal together is, is something to be celebrated, period. And then (laughs) it doesn't necessarily have to coincide with all of the historical junk that goes along with it.
0: Yeah. And I guess what I've come to realize about all the holidays is that there are these traditions that we've we've come upon sort of arbitrarily, because just like in in the life of a person, you know, in your early years, you establish different things that you like, and it's kind of random, but you know, oh, it becomes a tradition that we go to Pizza Hut every year on so and so's birthday, because we did that one time. And I think similarly, as a culture, we established these certain holidays some from religion some from history or alleged history and it's like now we have largely moved past the the origins but it still just kind of comes in handy to have these traditions these days set aside to get together with family and to do have the parades and everything so Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to be a total wet blanket about it. And, you know, I, I recognize that it it serves a purpose, even though at this point, I do kind of roll my eyes a little bit at the whole sort of like underlying concept of Thanksgiving (laughs) in, in a lot of
1: ways. In a lot of ways.
0: Okay. Let's talk about WKRP in Cincinnati. First time covering this show. What are, what's your history with WKRP?
1: I didn't know much about it. It was a show that aired before I was around. You know, it's a 70s show. I mean, I guess it ran into the early 80s. But um, yeah, it wasn't a show that I watched. It was for grown-ups when I was a baby. So I know of it, but not... It it wasn't even one that was really on too much in the rerun time that I was watching. It was a little bit later than that.
0: I feel like this is a little bit of a kind of hipster, deep cut, you know, in, in so much as you could have that at the time when there wasn't basic cable the way it is now. It still was one that I feel like the cool people talk about, but was never like a huge hit the way that, you know, your cheers and your taxis were. My biggest... Point of reference with WKRP is as a huge head of the class head, I always knew that Mr. Moore, you know, Howard Hessman, had this other thing that he did that sort of got him the gig, you know, and if he was in his 40s, 50s at the time that he was playing Mr. Moore on Head of the Class... He had established himself in the TV sitcom world as this DJ character and for most people that was sort of what he was almost playing off of when he went on to be the cool teacher in head of the class.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So okay, so this episode it's first season, right? It's the 7th episode ever of this show. Yes. So there's not a ton to catch up on, but we know from having watched the the pilot episode just on our own at some point. The the whole sort of premise of this show is that the radio station has been around for a while but when the show is starting they're making the switch from what a, a primarily a talk content to rock and roll right. right so they're changing up their format and they're they're rebranding basically right and they've got a new. It's kind of like the same thing as the other one we just talked about with Dave Foley. Um, News radio, right? It's the same thing where you sort of the show begins with the with the introduction of a new manager and sort of like injecting young blood and sort of like protagonist that you're going to see through their eyes coming into this established situation.
1: Yeah, and so the young guy who looks an awful lot like uh, Andy Gibb is the station manager. So this station manager, this new um, program director guy is young and good looking and super hip. And then he's got Howard Hessman and a couple of other, you know, young, hip people. The dad from Sister Sister yeah. is um, is in his like, what is it? Shaft. Well, best. this <laughs> get is what up here. I
0: wanted to ask. Was this character the direct inspiration for Tim Meadows, Ladies Man? Oh, my character? gosh.
1: Yeah. you Take
0: one look at this guy. He's got the same afro the same sort of like the
1: leather jacket with the tight pants exactly. i mean and, it was just the look at the well, time that's the thing. Too, and so. he's
0: a radio personality but then on the other hand am i just like is this what hip black guys looked like at this right. time you yeah know, are you just so. sort of
1: lumping all black dudes together yeah i don't know and yeah he was one of the young cool guys that's a part of the rock and roll station and then you've got the station owner like the station man the owner of the of the place and he is feeling like he's been a little left out. So he wants to have an idea for a promotion for Thanksgiving. He wants to get involved in some way. So he's going around from, you know, uh, department to department, trying to like find out what's going on and get involved in things. And his secretary's blowing him off. She's like, oh, here's the mail for you. No, don't touch that. That's the important stuff. And so he's like, OK, I'm in charge. Don't I get to do anything? And she's like, no, no, I take care of that.
0: Well, this is a real dynamic uh, in, in the corporate world, I've noticed, where the assistant sort of is the one in charge because they're the ones that have all the information and knows. And so I've had jobs where, you know, the the president of the company is is like, you know, it, can I do this? And they're like, no, you can't. You know, you have to get to the next thing or whatever. And that's, that definitely reminded me of this, that this this lady was like, she's the, the brains of the operation. And this guy is sort of like impotent because he has all of the power, but none of the power.
1: But none of the power, yeah. And they have this whole agreement where she doesn't get him coffee and she won't take dictation yeah. and the other people at the station are like how did she get away with that like <laughs> but that's their dynamic and so then he goes into the booth and Howard Hessman is like taking a nap during this 17 minute long Pink Floyd song yeah and he's walking around trying to get his attention you know trying to engage in a conversation with him and
0: but then you see he's only pretending to take a nap you know they show a close-up and he opens his eye you know the whole idea is that everyone like the office is such a office radio station is such a well-oiled machine that this guy has nothing to do
1: he's nothing to do so he tries to insert himself and his idea is and he gets the two people that are at the station from the before times the sales guy and Les Nessman, yes, love who, that name. who is the news reporter at, that still remained at the station so he says you know we were around here a long time ago I've got a great plan you know it's going to be a really great promotion sales you're going to be happy about it unless you're going to do a live remote from the event and i'm not going to tell anybody what it is but just be ready be ready
0: yes yeah so that's the whole thing this guy again like sitcom me as hell through and through this guy's whole initial sort of problem is very kind of sitcom and then this whole solution of like i have an idea you know don't don't ask me what it is just like report to the places that i tell you to report and do what i say
1: it's top secret it's gonna be great
0: yeah there are a couple of such time capsule things here with it being a show about a radio station. They have a whole joke where they're like, they're like, all right, I guess if you want to help us, you can help settle this debate. We don't know whether to give away Boston or foreigner t-shirts. Right. And And the boss is like, foreign ones will shrink in the wash so give away boston ones because he doesn't understand that boston and foreigner are the names of bands which at the time you would be like haha this old fuddy duddy doesn't know the names of the bands but watching it now it just makes me go like those were idiotic names for bands it's so confusing that thing of naming bands after cities in the 70s i just i find such a strange cities
1: and states and And countries yeah you had
0: asia yeah it's so Um, strange the confusing band name craze reached its height in the 90s with the band live there has never been more of a who's-on-first, you know, confusion, chaos-in-the-making situation than a band naming themselves Live.
1: Or <laughs> The Who. Or...
0: The Band.
1: Or even more recently, right, than Live would be The Band Fun.
0: Yeah, no, they just, uh, yeah, they, they like to confuse us in those days. Anyway, okay, <laughs> so... We're all gearing up for Mr. Carlson. That's the boss. Mr. Carlson's big idea, right? His
1: big promo.
0: Everyone's that's right. like, all right, we're going to wait and see. We'll see what this is all about.
1: So it all happens off ca- off camera, right? right? This whole gag happens off camera. But we get Les Nesman at the live, you know, with his little headphones right. on, Out on. this the little, and And he's like leaning up against a grocery store window and the owner comes and chases him away and he's got his little microphone and he's you know they've turned they've gone live to him from the studio so he's out there and he's talking away and he's describing as this oh a helicopter has come into view and it's got a banner hanging off the back and he very slowly reads right out the Banner to like the chagrin of all the people back at the radio station like this is horrible radio because he's taking so long and it's like happy Thanksgiving from WKRP or something and then he's like oh and something just fell out of the back of the helicopter it looks like it might be skydivers and another one and another one Hmm, no parachutes yet oh there it's something black and round I can't really tell what it is Oh, they're splatting to the ground. Oh my goodness. And he's describing and it turns out that the station owner is throwing live turkeys out of this helicopter as a present to Cincinnati for Thanksgiving, and that is the the bit. That was the bit.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating how this this is maybe a minute or so of of TV and it has obviously lived on in people's minds for decades, you know? Like I said, we got multiple things on Instagram. You gotta do the WKRP thing. And it's funny, it is all just this one bit. And like you said, it's off-camera. And it's such an interesting contrast to when we were talking about Miley Cyrus a couple of weeks ago, and I was saying how there's this laziness to that show that every time they were going to do anything that, that took any sort of visual or physical maneuvering or everything, they just did a cut and skipped it and did it off camera, and it just reeked of laziness. Whereas this is... You know, off camera comedy at its best. You right. know, they're just using it as this showcase to give this actor, you know, this, this moment to just describe this crazy event and let it just sort of live in your imagination and, and let you experience it through his. Description of it.
1: Right. In the same way that the people who were listening to it on the radio might have, right? (laughs) And the key line is he uses the line from the Hindenburg disaster and he goes, Oh, the humanity! as the turkeys are not flying because they don't fly, especially from that height Mm -hmm. and just splatting to the ground in the parking lot of this. Uh, grocery store and causing havoc and then the helicopter lands mm-hmm. and they try to release more of the turkeys once it's on the ground and the turkeys stage an attack yeah uh, come yeah. back and start chasing people around because they see their dead friends on the well, ground well that's
0: true because this this guy gets a whole second act of this off-camera comedy thing because after the actual broadcast happens then you have a subsequent scene where he comes back to the office to the station and he's all disheveled and his <laughs> feathers his clothes are, are messed up Yeah, feathers <laughs> everywhere and so he starts saying he's, he says you know five or six sentences of like preposterous things that happen and then he goes It gets pretty strange after that. (laughs) (laughs) He says it's as though the Turkeys mounted a counterattack. And again, he just he gets this great monologue where he gets to just describe this scene and you get to watch everybody soaking it in. And uh yeah, it's just lovely the way, you know, I noticed immediately that similar to the Norman Lear shows we talked about, maybe even more so, this is a flimsy show, you know, between the time that it's being made and just the overall budget and vibe. The walls of this radio station look like cubicles or something. It looks like if somebody were to elbow one of these walls, they would fall over. It just has a very cheap feel and so you know just talk about using that as an asset and just being able to come up with something that doesn't require any special effects or locations or anything and just sort of you you know turning that into a feature instead of a bug that you have to just describe things instead of actually show them
1: yeah absolutely i think I mean, look, this show has kind of legendary status in terms of, like, being a fan favorite. It, it, you know, used to be shown year after year after year. In fact... The next year, the next Thanksgiving, after WKRP had been on, you know, for a little over a year, they recorded a new intro and replayed this episode because it was the most requested rerun that they had ever had, and... I think the one of the keys is the very last line that's said in the episode, and even in the version we watched, you can see the entire cast cracking up when the the owner of the station delivers this very last line of the episode, which is, as God is my witness, I thought turkeys could fly. Yeah. And Everyone is like, I mean, Lonnie Anderson turns and covers her mouth, like three of the other cast members, the dad from Sister Sister, like puts his head down and covers his face so that you can't see them all cracking up because he just like comes out of his office, finally has taken off the coat that where he was covered in feathers and everything else. And he's like, as God is my witness, I
0: I thought turkeys could fly. And what's (laughs) great about this is it almost presages the sort of Larry David type nihilism, where there's no lesson to be learned, there's no, like, oh, you know, he nobody was paying attention to him they thought that he was over the hill and he didn't have any good ideas but then it turned out that he was the one that that you know saved the day at the end or something like (laughs) nope nope, (laughs) nothing like that it just
1: he just got in the way
0: yeah and the reason why he did more than get in the way and and the reason i think why it has become so so notorious and beloved is just the the surprise of it and the tone of it, it's almost like somebody telling a joke with a very long and almost like tedious... Wind up, and it sort right. of lulls you into this sense of security, but there, but the punchline is so good that they have that confidence that when they finally get to it, you just were not expecting it, and that's <laughs> right. exactly how it
1: is. They, and it really is; it's it's very funny. It ends. I mean, it's another one of these shows that like it just it ends on that. You're like, wait, there's nothing more. That's it. No act three. Like it, that's it. That's act yeah. three. So turns out, based on a true story.
0: Oh, yeah. What, like something from a headline they saw or something? Um,
1: No, one of the writers knew a guy who was a station manager or program director or something at a radio station in Atlanta, and he told the story of how he got fired when he worked at a station in Dallas for a Thanksgiving promotion where he thought it would be a great idea to throw live turkeys out of the back of a pickup truck, (laughs) and it was a mess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, that sounds hard. Terrible. Yeah, so not much to talk about in terms of tracking the trope, you know. There's no family here, there's nothing, you know, this is all just adults at work. If anything... This is just a case of, you know, holidays like this. It's just a little extra thing to to latch on to, you know, just something funny to throw into the mix.
1: Yeah, throw into the mix. And I think, I mean, this episode not this episode of um, WKRP, but like this episode of our podcast, I think that to me is what kind of came to light with not finding a specific trope. For this week, but just kind of looking at Thanksgiving episodes that, you know, had some buzz or that people liked Mm -hmm. and kind of seeing the way that different the ways that different shows are just like, oh, yeah, nod to a holiday without doing like everybody sit down to dinner and we're going to learn a lesson or we're going to this or we're going to that having, you know, like you said zooming in on one particular trope but just more the overarching like hey it's thanksgiving what do what do tv shows do
0: yeah and i think this first one wkrp has a lot in common in a sense with uh, our next one so let's move on to seinfeld
1: season six episode eight the mom and pop store
0: yeah so we've covered seinfeld once before for our julia louise dreyfus episode it's always hard. Uh Seinfeld does not lend itself to the tropes the way that other shows do. You know, we talked about this last time. It always has, you know, its fingers and all different pies. There's always all different interlocking stories going on. And it's not super tropey. You know, you're not right. going to have a whole episode of Seinfeld about they get in a fight and they have to figure out a way to reconcile. You know, they they were doing... Interesting, weird stuff. And so this is, this is as close to it as, as you're going to get. Yeah.
1: Sure. And the other thing with Seinfeld, which we found true in a lot of the ensemble shows, but it, Seinfeld more specifically, is just that they have so many storylines happening, right? Like, there's always something happening with, you know, George and Jerry are getting into a, a a thing, and Kramer's got his own thing going on that might connect back to something George is doing, and Elaine's doing something too, you know what I mean? So there's always just, Friends is kind of like that, but I feel like Seinfeld is is much more everybody's sort of on their own doing their own thing. And then we sit back down at the diner and find out about all the things. There's just so much going on that you can't really say there's an ABC storyline.
0: Yeah, definitely. And they were very good about, yeah, splitting them up and making them just sort of equals. So in this case, you know, the mom and pop store is the name of the episode. But that's not even I would argue like in the top 2 of the of the stories. I think a lot of people remember this episode because it's the one where George buys John Voight's car, right? Right we later find out it's John Voight the periodontist not John Voight the actor but that is you know a big a big aspect of this story is is George trying to figure out whether this new car he got belonged to John Voight or not
1: right and Jerry is very skeptical and this too is from a real life thing so one of the writers on the show thought that he had bought the John Voight mobile, he called it the Voight mobile, it is the actual car that's used in the episode is Mm -hmm. the writer's car. He was also told when he bought the vehicle that it that John Voight used to own it. And um, that was part of the bet that he and his writing partner who is kind of Jerry sort of plays that role in this episode is doubting Thomas, right? Mm -hmm. And so the bet was they'll get John Voight to guest star on this episode and settled bet as to whether or not this was actually his car. And it is he's like, I've never seen that car before in my life.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I would kind of agree with, yeah, with Jerry's skepticism. Like why, how, how could you possibly substantiate that? But I will say the part where George is explaining to the other characters that, you know, he, he thinks he has uh, John Voight's car, Jason Alexander playing that false modesty is so perfect. Those scenes <laughs> where he has this nugget of information that he's so proud of, and he's like savoring every moment of delivering it to them with this false casualness, with this sort of like, oh, no big deal, but just, eh, just in case you're interested, you know, he just he plays that so well. It's so funny the way he sort of, you know, sets himself up for the fall with just how how brimming with pride he is about these idiotic things
1: so that's funny because that you picked out that scene as a favorite to watch because I was thinking the same thing about the scene between Jerry and Elaine. I loved that little acting thing that they were doing where Elaine she finds out some gossip. She was trying. They- Jerry's story is that he's trying to figure out why he's not invited right. to his dentist's Thanksgiving Eve party Correct. where they overlook the street where they blow up all the balloons for the. The next morning all the big floats that go in the macy's day parade and so he wasn't invited this year but then throughout the episode we find out that all of the friends have been invited yeah. and he's not even though it's his dentist um played by brian cranston mm-hmm. and so um elaine does a little digging and finds out some information and so in the scene that i love she's kind of sit like sitting on the arm of the couch and Jerry's sitting on one of his bar stools and she does this like acting thing where she's just telling a story and kind of like leans over to the side like i found out something interesting and sort of like leans her body a little bit further than you know a normal person would she's kind of effusive the character of Elaine sort of moves in ways that i yeah. move like a little more you know, exuberant than a natural human would be. And Jerry just, like... Cox's head exactly at the same angle, but doesn't do his body. And you see in his eyes he's trying to like get her to break. Yeah. And I loved that. It reminded me of playing scenes with my my friend Dave Russell that I've done lots of shows with over the years. We went to high school together, and every time we try to like do scenes together, we just like mess with each other. And you could just see those two actors having a great time. It was so fun. So she like bends over, and then she gets the twinkle in her eye, and sort of whips her head back up. And it made me laugh. So it was just thinking about the acting, good acting in so many different ways in this show.
0: Yeah. At this point, it's season six. And so they all completely live in these characters. Like, you know, to say that they're elevating the material is is an understatement at this point. And they have all of those things, those weird little things. Things with their bodies and their voices and everything that they each bring to it and so yeah you know Kramer to all of them you mentioned how this party you know this guy's apartment overlooks the where they blow up the the floats. If you've never seen those pictures, those are amazing to check out. The The photographs that, that, you know, I feel like for a while they did a good job of keeping them out of the public eye, but now with the internet and everything, you can see like the half-inflated Snoopys and Garfields and everything, and it is bizarre and kind of nightmarish. Uh, but I like that connection, you know, the Thanksgiving parade, and I assume that it's like this other places, but, you know, having lived close to the city all the time, we're always, you know, we even went to it in person a few times, that Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is a pretty key aspect of the whole Thanksgiving experience, just sort of having it on on the television and just kind of checking in with it throughout the morning. So, Even just, you know, the the occasional mention of that kind of taps into the Thanksgiving nostalgia. And, of course, we haven't even talked about yet what the real Thanksgiving part of this plot is, which is Elaine's boss, Mr. Pitt, wants to win a radio contest where he gets to be one of the, like, sort of pallbearers for the (laughs) Woody Woodpecker float.
1: Right. He (laughs) wants to be one of the rope holders. Yeah for uh, the Woody Woody the Woodpecker float. And Elaine just happens to have an in-depth knowledge of big band music. And so he forces her to call in to the radio station to see if she can win him this opportunity. And she does. And so then he is holding on to the rope when the Woody the Woodpecker balloon starts to deflate and kind of collapses in during the parade, which again is another one of these based on real life things. Something like that happened. There was apparently some, you know, back in the nineties, as viral as you could go footage of Woody the Woodpecker, the Woody the Woodpecker balloon kind of exploding and yeah. you know uh, down the avenue and um that's what they wanted to use but they couldn't get the rights to it for the television show that's weird though because it airs on nbc and they were on nbc you would think but nope they weren't macy's parade was not giving out that footage because again back in the day where you could control that kind of stuff yeah 94 so yeah we just had the the fabric like parachute day at PE sort of falling on top of Elaine's boss as he's yeah. like trying to keep the balloon up and all of that happens because Jerry crashes the party the dentist party and leans over and knocks this award that is the Empire State Building right. out the window and it pierces what are the Woodpecker. yes
0: this is a classic sort of Seinfeld plot dovetailing thing where everything affects everything else now just talking about Mr. Pitt for a second, you know, because it's it's really just the one scene with him and Elaine that we get. But he's a very funny character, and it just got me thinking how, you know, like where he ranks among Elaine's bosses, because this was always a part of the show. Elaine is the one character who is a professional. You know, George has flirtations with different jobs. He works at the Yankees office for a while. But Elaine is the one character who is always sort of rooted in like a legit professional work uh situation and so she had jay peterman later in the series and i feel like he's he's the best ultimately that guy was just he just kind of blew them all away and then i think before mr pitt you have the guy from the publishing house But yeah, Mr. Pitt, very funny character, like sort of snooty Downton Abbey type. But then, you know, anytime you really sort of get to know him, he's always kind of silly. Yeah, very
1: quirky. Yeah. So we mentioned that the name of the episode is The Mom and Pop Store. And like you said, that wasn't really a major plot line, but it was the bookends. It was the beginning and the end, almost. Um, And we get a call from another head of the class alum, Mm. right? Arvid is the one. So the deal with this is that there's a mom and pop store Um, cobbler in the neighborhood that's going to close if they don't get more business. And so Kramer takes all of Jerry's sneakers to them. And while he's there, he points out that there's a bunch of faulty wiring on the ceiling that the mom and pop you know, mom and pop should get fixed. And so they call in the city inspector to get it fixed. And they find out it's going to be like five grand and they don't have that. So they just take everything from the store, close up shop and leave and start selling Jerry's sneakers. (laughs) And so Arvid has bought these sneakers at a garage sale, calls up Jerry Seinfeld because they told him that they were, Sneakers from the famous comedian Jerry Seinfeld, or Jerry, whatever his last name is in this show. No, is it it's Seinfeld? Seinfeld? Yeah. So, so he, like uh, John Voigt, like mm-hmm. the car with John, Vo- you know, the John Voigt car, he is calling to make sure these really are. Jerry's sneakers, and Jerry's like, I'll be right there. And he's like, well, I'm out in so-and-so New Jersey. And he's like, I'm on my way. And then, so earlier in the episode, because Jerry doesn't have any sneakers, he puts on these cowboy boots, and then we get the reference to the Midnight Cowboy on the bus at the end.
0: Yeah, it's so weird. I feel like Seinfeld did this, like, five times, you know? Like, it was such a strange—it was not at all part of the normal— Feel of the show, but every once in a while they would decide to do a movie parody and the the movies that they would reference and even just the ones that they reference in their casual conversations are always like a decade or two earlier than... What was even like the norm at the time? I feel like, I guess Midnight Cowboy, a lot of people would still remember that. But when Jerry Seinfeld will like randomly toss out the name of an actress, he'll toss out like Jane Wyman or yeah. something, you know? Olivia
1: like, de Havilland. Yeah, like
0: he's just always referring to these old timey names and movies and stuff. But so, yes, this is one of those movie parody parts where they're on the bus and uh, because it's a John Voight movie. I also just wanted to throw out the John Voigt storyline is one of these, like we said, the Seinfeld Dovetail things, where everything kind of comes together. But I feel like this one it's very funny, but a little forced the way it's reverse engineered how when when they see John Voigt on the street, which of course is a Crazy coincidence, but whatever. Who cares? They go like, "Hey, John, John Voight, wait, wait, I, I need to show you something. Is, is this really your car?" And John Voight takes his arm and bites it. Right, he's right. getting into a cab and he bites his arm.
1: Kramer, yes, yeah. because Kramer is just on the street and sees John Voight and is trying to like explain the thing, and right. John Voight is like, "This is a crazy fan," and and so Kramer like reaches into the cab where yeah. John Voight's getting into the cab, and he's like. This guy's reaching for my wallet So he grabs Kramer's arm and bites it Apparently they didn't tell Kramer, they didn't tell Michael Richards That that was going to happen So his reaction is like, what, what, what
0: It's real But that's so strange though, because it's part of the story
1: Yeah, but they didn't, they I guess hadn't given him Those pages yet, so he didn't know What was coming, so uh, On purpose, I mean it was one of the, they did it on purpose
0: And then of course, because he's got the Bite marks on his arm, and they're going To a Thanksgiving party full of dentists and they've got the pencil with the bite marks on it from the alleged John Voight car so they it can... It was in
1: the glove box of the car, so they're right. trying to match the right. bite marks to, so, from the pencil to the arm.
0: Yes, it's very funny and the scene with him biting his arm is very funny, but it's just one of those things when you step back and go, oh, well, yeah, of course, they just wrote it like that so that they could arrange this thing. It is just one of the more, you know, preposterous yeah, uh, stories they've ever had. It's
1: absolutely asinine, for sure, But it's, I mean, it's still, it's funny, like, and it goes by so quickly. And so many random things happen to Kramer of all people anyway, that it's like, all right, it's ridiculous, but it's, it's Kramer.
0: Yeah. The other completely random apropos of nothing thing that I wanted to mention, because I've always noticed this about Seinfeld. He has a handful of VHS tapes in his apartment, and you can clearly see that one of them is Child's Play 2 that had a very distinctive spine because I owned that movie as a kid. And I just always found that so bizarre. Why would Jerry Seinfeld own a copy of Child's Play 2? It's completely inconsistent with his personality, with the age he was. Like, it just doesn't make any sense. And now that these things are on Netflix and in HD, you can actually see them clearer than you could back in the day. And so this time I was looking out for what the other ones are. You can clearly see one of the other movies is Pretty Woman. And that I could buy because, all right, that's just a generic mainstream movie. Maybe he has that on for like when dates are over or something. And then the other one I noticed... That's on the other side, and at the front of the pile is Arachnophobia, which is also <laughs> a very bizarre movie for him to have.
1: But oh, Jerry likes horror movies.
0: Well, here is my conspiracy theory: He likes movies by Universal because his show is on, made NBC on NBC Universal. NBC Universal. <laughs> I know for a fact that Child's Play Two is a Universal movie. I don't know offhand. I know arachnophobia was Amblin, but I don't know if that was under the universal heading. So that was my theory, that they, that it's just either corporate synergy or just sort of like, well, we can only clear these licenses or something. So these are the VHS tapes you need to have on your
1: Yeah, copy. that is wild. I didn't Clock any of that, but what I noticed was another one of very my favorite, but also everyone's favorite episodes of Seinfeld is the puffy shirt episode, yeah. right? And in that episode he puts on the puffy shirt and he says but I don't want to be a pirate yeah. and in this episode he puts on the cowboy boots and he says and I don't want to be a cowboy yeah. in that little whiny voice and it's like, I don't think Jerry I don't ever think of Jerry Seinfeld as like cute but he does this, like, little boy thing. And I'm like, oh, you're so
0: cute. Yeah, no, and that definitely was a callback to, like, oh, everyone loved it when he said that, you know, that line in that way. Um, But yeah, again, in terms of tracking the trope, I think the Thanksgiving parade gets you a lot of mileage in terms of just Thanksgiving vibes and just making it sort of feel like part of that whole experience. And yeah, I think this is kind of what Thanksgiving is if you are, like, a single person in the city, where it's maybe... not a huge thing. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, there's the more like friends giving. Yeah. yeah. Maybe someone's having a party and uh, who knows, you know, maybe some of them are going up to some relative the next day or something, but it's, it's not a huge thing.
1: Right. Them. It's just, you know, having a dinner out instead of a, but okay. So another fun fact though, about this episode is that this is 1994. It aired the same night as the underdog episode of friends where they both, so both episodes both Seinfeld and Friends that night had balloons exploding, deflating in the Macy's Day Parade. It was another one of these, like, Ross wa- wanted to, like, or maybe Monica. I don't know. I think I feel like I'm getting it confused with the, them wanting to be on New Year's Rock and Eve. But the underdog was blowing down the street.
0: All right. So much for Seinfeld. Moving on to another New York-based uh, comedian with his own TV show, king of queens
1: oh joy season six episode nine
0: now i want to get out in front of this so king of queens was suggested by friend of the show and fellow podcaster eric from the everything is a primary source podcast that we were on as a guest a little while ago we covered charles in charge So there's a little bit of an irony here that one of our most uh, loyal and beloved supporters uh, multiple times has (laughs) advocated this show that that is not necessarily held in the highest esteem in in our household. Uh, It's
1: very true, but I'll say this. My biggest complaint about King of Queens is that the woman, like the wife who 's played by Leah Remini, is always like the nagging shrew and and that is like her role in the show well in this show in this one, she turns out to be right, <laughs> yeah well yeah, so but she 's still the nagging
0: shrew <laughs> now for me the Kevin James prejudice. I think doesn't even go that deep. I think it's more of just this show and this whole aesthetic, you know, was was coming around when I was a young man that was, you know, I wasn't watching much TV at all at this time. And, you know, when I was watching something, it was like, you know, the DVD commentary for Stanley Kubrick's director of photography talking about how he shot eyes wide shot or something, you know, like, I was just (laughs) into that stuff. Like, I was turning my nose up at sitcoms in general. And I think... Kevin James, I saw as sort of an offshoot of that Adam Sandler world that I wasn't hugely into. And so this whole thing was just not my thing. And I think it took a lot to get me back into sitcoms at all. And yeah, this this one just seemed like kind of middle brow for me
1: yeah well and look there's the, the whole kind of genre of those like family comedies that weren't really meant for the kids you know that were of like working class folks and if you if you kind of no matter what the era is right like if we're looking at this one which is like early 2000s Ray Romano same kind of time period same sort of dynamic you have the like crappy old fashioned you know sexual marriage politics of heterosexual marriage at play and it's just it it's so amplified and, and they're like trying to make fun of it in a way that is different from like what Married with Children did but they still aren't that far removed from that you know.
0: Yeah in terms of the relationship between Kevin James and Leah Ramini in the show I realize I, I don't think i've ever seen this so i don't even have anything to go on other than that thing of like well she's kind of hot and he's like a big old schlub and that in and of itself kind of makes it seem weird but i will say she she's an interesting person to consider as i was watching this i started thinking in some ways she's oddly like the most successful saved by the bell Alumni. Oh,
1: you know? I was, that's what I was going say. I can't see her in anything without thinking about those like four or five episodes of The Beach. Yeah. So where they worked at the beach for that summer.
0: Her role on Saved by the Bell was to be the New York girl. She was like the anti-Kelly Kapowski. So yeah, when they got their jobs at the beach and they did that special beach half season, she was the love interest and she had the New York attitude and she didn't stand for any of his guff and you know eventually he broke down her sort of icy exterior but yeah you know i know she has her whole thing with scientology and that you know she's been in the headlines for that but she brings a certain toughness to this a certain sort of working class you know feel that even though she's attractive she she seems real and grounded and she to me she fits into the world with kevin james where it's not like he's married to margot robbie or something oh, you yeah
1: know. no I, I see what you're saying for sure and i think uh, so <laughs> this will just tell you like what i knew about <laughs> about things it was it was probably relatively recently that i realized that king of queen's meant like they lived in queens oh. <laughs> like i didn't even that didn't even occur to me that that was like talking about the place where they lived i just i don't know what yeah. i I was just you like just
0: thought he was like a drag queen no no subtle. not
1: even i just thought it was oh it must have something to do with something and like never put it together and then like you can't help but like As he's driving his delivery truck that's brown like UPS, but he's not, you know, that's a parcel service, they keep calling it. So he's driving down the road, and it's, like, very obviously Queens. I'm like, again, this tells you how much I watched the show. I had, I was like, oh, yeah. Oh, and then the whole Leah Remini thing using her, like, actual accent makes sense. <laughs>
0: yeah, and just her whole look, everything, you know? It's like she's, she's sexy, but she's not. She just has that working-class vibe that you can believe, you know, I don't know what their origins are, but, oh, maybe she was the cheerleader and he was the football player, and they go back, you know, like it— It doesn't seem to me like a wild mismatch. And again, it's not hard for me to believe that the way you characterize their dynamic in the show is probably true some of the time. But in this, it doesn't seem that way. They seem like more or less equals. And I will say, I found this very similar to the Ray Romano episode, where we get this debate this sort of classic you know issue where there are two sides to it that are presented very reasonably and there's you know it's a very sort of fair uh representation of both sides of this argument
1: so yeah i mean look the plot of this show is a plot from ellen they that's where they got it from. The exact same plot aired nine years earlier on an episode of Ellen called Kiss My Bum. And this one, the end is a little bit different than the end of Ellen but Leah Remini's character is cooking dinner for everyone. Her, normally her dad, who's played by Jerry Stiller, is with them, oh, yeah, but he he's, he wasn't in this episode. He, um, has gone to visit his brother or something out of town. So he's not going to be with them for Thanksgiving. So she's going to cook for their friends. And so that's what she, and she's cooking for 10. And normally, you know, there, there's all the jokes about how, like, oh, you're cooking and something isn't on fire, you know? It's not, the house isn't smoking or whatever. And uh, and she's like, I know, isn't it great? And so, you know, the kitchen's a mess and she's got all this stuff going on. And then, knock, 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 an eye-patched Nick Offerman
0: yes, our knocks first, on the door. First of two eye patches we're going to get this evening. That's right. Um, but yeah, we got Nick Offerman... Pre-Parks and Rec, but, you know, I'm sure he was known as a comedian and, you know, he he was around.
1: And his uh, partner, I don't know if that, I mean, I don't know if they're actually married. Megan Mullally, it's his, like, wife or partner or whatever. But she almost was cast in Leah Remini's role and she decided, she turned the role down to take the role on Will and Grace.
0: That would have been a very different show. Wow, I cannot imagine that. (laughs) Kevin James and Megan Mullally as the married couple. It would, it would have been a totally thing.
1: different Megan, Megan Mullally kind of character. But that's the thing. She,
0: I don't think she can not talk like that. What are I've ne- you talking I've about? Never the, seen, the,
1: the, um, the Karen voice, you mean? I've never is seen a totally different voice than she used on Parks and Rec, even.
0: Uh, Megan Mullally has a very distinct voice. Maybe it's it's not the specific thing on Will and Grace, but. She has a very specific thing that I don't think she can get away from, and I just <laughs> I, I just have a hard time picturing that.
1: Um, well, I think she made the right choice in choosing Will and Grace and yeah, creating Karen because that was a fantastic part.
0: But Nick Offerman is perfect casting for this guy that shows up on the doorstep because he conveys this toughness that he's he's very formidable and so you absolutely can believe him as somebody who could do damage and who you wouldn't want to mess with but on the other hand he also conveys this sort of straightforward trustworthy kind of you know he's your he's your gym teacher or your uncle or your you know your your CEO in the military like he's he's your guy that you would trust to the end of the earth like and so he's he's one of those guys like you can kind of tilt that crystal either way and and see him differently. And so he's he's perfectly sort of like cryptic and inscrutable and lends himself to both interpretations. So let's so what are the two interpretations of this situation?
1: Right. So Doug's interpretation is that This guy's car broke down on the side of the road. He needs to use the phone. Let him in. He can hang out till his friend gets here. Oh, his friend's coming up from Baltimore. It's going to be four hours. And Carrie's interpretation is, this is a stranger. We're hosting a dinner for 10. We're not having a stranger in the house. Put him outside. And she insists that he goes out on the porch and wait for his friend, which he does, in front of the window for hours.
0: Yeah. Now, what would you do? What, what would your take be? If somebody comes to the door, this is Queens, so it's, it's part of the city, but it's like a little more suburban, and says this, wh- what do you think? Do you, you know, do you do the Doug thing and go like, well, you know, I'd rather just, kind of hope for the best and you know try to be nice to people or do you do the carry thing and go like if there's a chance that this guy is gonna hurt us then it's not worth the risk
1: i don't even put myself in that situation because i don't ever answer the door the only way i would wind up in this situation is if you answered the door just like Kevin James, Doug does in this episode and puts his wife in that situation and in that situation I would very much be like what the hell are you doing I'm not comfortable with this I'm gonna go lock myself upstairs and you can stay down here and finish cooking Thanksgiving for all of your family and friends because this is uncomfortable.
0: Yeah I was thinking that too that that is how that would play out you wouldn't answer the door in the first place and yeah I think we uh, we, we sort of fall along these gender lines cuz ultimately it's hard to say the the social pressures in these situations you know there have been all kinds of studies about this how incredibly susceptible people are to not being you know, socially off or not coming across as rude and the things that people will do that they never thought they would just to avoid confrontation and stuff. So it's hard to say how you would react or or how one would react. No,
1: what would probably happen if this was a real situation, like as much as I say, I'd go upstairs and lock myself and let you handle it. No, I'd be nice. Yeah. And I would be unhappy about being nice when they stole my shit.
0: But that is, but yeah, I... I do ultimately agree with Doug that I do answer the door in those situations, because otherwise that means like we're now living in a world where nobody answers the door for any reason. And so if if one of my neighbors has a problem or whatever, and they're coming to knock on the door that that's, you know, I'm not willing uh, to do that. And that's, you know. Yeah, but we also now live in a world of cell phones. No, it's true. But it's still, uh, to me, it's a tough calculation to make because you're avoiding the small risk that it's a psycho killer or a criminal or whatever. But you are 100% creating a situation of I'm a person that doesn't answer the door and I'm not available to people who need help or whatever. And uh, yeah, on the other hand, The movie A Clockwork Orange permanently, you know, I I think about that anytime something like this comes up, you know, I just think of Malcolm McDowell going, please, ma'am, you must help us, my friend, he's injured, you know, and and then he does bludgeons them with a giant penis sculpture. So uh, yeah, you you can't be too careful.
1: And look, the fact of the matter is, most people who do need help are not going to go knock on someone's door because they know it's creepy as hell to do that. And they know that it's scary to people who are in the house. It's not like that girl scouts don't even do the thing anymore of going door to door and selling cookies. Like kids barely trick or treat anymore. Most places, most cities now trick or treating happens at stores. You know what I mean? So like, It is sad that we have to think about the fact that we don't live in safe communities very often where we feel comfortable answering doors. But as this episode proves, very often you're just setting yourself up to get taken advantage of.
0: Yeah, but like I said, I think it portrays it in a reasonably like fair and compassionate way that they both sort of have a point. Neither one of them is just like being, you know, mean or stupid or whatever.
1: No, they absolutely make Leah Remini out to be the shrew. All of her. She has spent a day or more slaving over this dinner, like trying to create this amazing meal for friends and family who've come over and every single person ends up out on the porch with him and she's alone yeah, by no, like that, at dinner.
0: Yes. Throughout the episode that's what happened. So to to back up a little bit, so the, the family all comes over. We have baby Patton Oswald. We have <laughs> Yeah whole... he does
1: look really young in this.
0: And so you know the uh Lou um Ferrigno Yeah Lou Ferrigno is, is part of the family. Playing <laughs> himself. Okay, right. So obviously I'm not totally up to speed on all of these supporting characters, but we've got the whole family there. This Disagreement is ongoing, um like we said, Nick Offerman is on the porch this whole time. Kevin James says at some point, bottom line is, I assume the best and people you assume the worst. so like we said, we've got this very sort of clear you know disagreement between the two of them and yeah as as people are eating their dinner and everything, everybody is asking like, what's with the guy on the porch and Doug and Carrie keep wanting to just sort of like de-emphasize it and move along. And everyone else is like, no, it's weird. And the little kids are asking questions and stuff. And Nick Offerman kind of comes in from time to time. just like, Oh, sorry to bother you, but I need to, I need to use the bathroom or I need to, you know, and it is this thing where, yeah, like you said, bit by bit, people start to take Doug's side. People start feeling bad for the guy and kind of going like, well, you know, I guess eventually Doug says like, well, I'm just going to go out there if if you won't let him in here. And it is, you know, yes, it is eventually like everyone's kind of deserted Carrie to go hang out with the guy out front. But I would still maintain, it still seems like a real dilemma to me where you or the viewer are going, hmm, I don't know about this. And I I sympathize with her. Like, to me, it's not It's even though, yeah, the characters start to gang up on her, I don't feel like the show is characterizing her unfairly?
1: No, the the show, I think the writing keeps it even, but she, you know, it very much looks like she's going to get her comeuppance all throughout, right? And then the twist at the end is no, right. he locks them all out of the house and he steals everything. Right. You know, and so then she's standing there with the with the police explaining what happened in her rightness. But I think where, like, the part that kind of rubs me the wrong way is the part that you mentioned where he's like, I think, you know, the best in people and you think the worst. And I just, I, to me, I don't think that that's true. And again, I didn't watch the show enough to know if that, like, is who she is. But as a person who would have pause about letting a stranger into my home, it's not because I think the worst of people. It's, because that is a safety risk. And I am much smaller than Nick Offerman, and that would not be a safe situation.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. And look, the show doesn't address that particular angle of it. But again, all I would say is if, if you're having a show about a married couple, you know, this having them have those different sort of points of view makes sense. Like, I, yeah. I think that's a good sort of, basis for it and you know i also don't have the context of of what she's like in the other episodes but i would say the idea that going with his whole sort of lovable teddy bear kind of thing the idea that doug would be a little naive and he would err on the side of like oh come on he seems like a good guy what you know whereas she would be a little more streetwise and yeah a little more jaded it's not reinventing the wheel, but I think that's that's a perfectly fair yeah, dynamic it, it
1: definitely fits with at least the characters as they're presenting themselves in mm-hmm. in this episode. And the other thing is that we just we don't get a lot of the real, like the true perspectives from the other characters, right? Like Patton Oswalt, he's like the butt of the joke because he's on Carrie's side, but they make fun of him as being afraid of everything all the time. Like he yeah. works at the, he works for the MTA and so he sits behind bulletproof glass in a little booth and is scared of everything. And so they just write off his opinion at, in agreeing with Carrie. Yeah,
0: they all Chime in a little bit, but the truth is, there's not much to discuss because there's not a whole lot of information. You know, everyone sort of understands, like, yeah, he's probably not a psychopath, but he could be. But he you could, know? Be. and that's it's and just a matter does, of where you fall.
1: Then he helps the little kid, right? So he
0: helps him with his game boy. He
1: helps the little, the littlest kid. There's two little kids that come to the dinner, and he helps the littlest one fix his game boy after he comes in and goes to the bathroom. Which is another one of these moments where, you know, he's just so affable and nice. And that's the that's the breaking point where um, Doug fills his plate and then fills a plate for Nick Offerman and goes outside.
0: Yeah. So now to walk through what happens here, because this seems a little hard to believe. So the whole party ends up on the porch because like we said they the one by one everyone went out to join Nick Offerman and then Leah Remini's character Carrie comes out and says you know it was it was me i didn't want to let you in but whatever it's thanksgiving let's all be friends And so then Nick Offerman goes, oh, you know what? There, I see my friend's car there. He's finally here to pick me up. Let me just go, you know, get my... He
1: said, we got a long
0: drive back. Uh, I need to go to the bathroom or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, very predictable, right? We can immediately see where this is going. Now, Nick Offerman goes inside by himself while everyone else is out on the porch. So clearly it's going to turn out that Carrie was right the whole time and he's going to rob them. But we get some more... Off-camera antics here because we go to a commercial and then we come back and it's like the police are here. We have been robbed. This is all in the past. So what happened? Like, how did this one guy get away with their stuff? They've got him outnumbered.
1: They the reason they knew he was robbing them when they were on the porch was that they turned around to go inside. And he
0: locked them out. And he locked them out. Right. So call the police, say There's a guy in our house... They didn't
1: bring their cell phones outside.
0: But I don't... I mean, they have him outnumbered. Like, why not just physically stop him until the police come. How?
1: He's gonna go out the back or wherever. I mean, he's gonna go out some... I mean, he gets out somehow.
0: Yeah, no, that's what I figured. He went out the back. But to me, that's... Unless... If the attitude is like, look, we don't want to mess with this guy, we don't know what he's capable of, then fair enough. But it just seemed to me like there's ten people out there. Why don't you go, oh, hey, hey, you three or four guys, you go around to the back. You guys go around to the side. Let's make sure this guy doesn't get anywhere with our stuff before the cops get here.
1: Or they were... scared. They're like, if he's going to do that, then we just, we need to clear out, but This is the part that kind of rings true with what you're saying, right? This is the situation where you'd want to be able to answer your door for your neighbors. So if they knew their neighbors or if they lived in a neighborhood or whatever where they had that capability, they could go next door and bang on their neighbor's door and be like, let me use your phone. There's a guy inside stealing all my stuff. But because the only guy in the neighborhood who ever opens his door is the one getting robbed, nobody is going to, you know, so. That that isn't an option either. At least it, it, that's how it's presented in the show, right? Like, they don't have any other options except just, uh, oh, well, we got robbed. Now we got to tell the cops.
0: Yeah, that just seemed weird to me. Like, they that left a big question mark to me of how did this play out? Like, did he walk right by them out the front door? Did he sneak out the back? They must be able to stop him if they wanted to. I mean, but, he
1: had 4 hours sitting out in the cold to plan it from yeah. stem to stern. Right. So he probably had his getaway. He had his uh his um plumbing truck in the back just like the uh yeah. the wet bandits from Home Alone.
0: But it's funny the pattern that I am seeing emerge in all of these is the sort of lack of sentimentality, you know, and that all of these sort of end on this little subversion you know or this little oh you thought maybe we were going for a sort of learning a lesson or a sort of like a moral value or something and nope joke's on you you know so like yeah in this case it was like yeah you you were you're right to not trust him. And, you know, the whole little sort of speech that that Carrie gives about, well, it's Thanksgiving, we should, you know, like, it's, it's like, no, that's wrong. So yeah, this is all sort of taking that Larry David attitude of like, no hugs, no learning, you know, let's just be funny.
1: Thanksgiving's too sappy already. You know, there's enough, uh, there's enough grocery store commercials out there to make you cry. We're not going to fall into the same trap. We're going to be more um nihilistic in our thanksgiving episodes.
0: Yeah. And so if we've gone 3 shows being unsentimental, I don't think we have to worry about that changing if the last show is It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia.
1: It's time to squash
0: the beef. Yeah, so It's Always Sunny, I feel like, is one of the shows that was sort of The antidote to the situation we were talking about in the early 2000s. You know, the King of Queens's and everything were those network sitcoms that were sort of down the middle. And then we got all of these FX and AMC type shows, you know, where smaller audiences, smaller scope of the shows. You would get these little 10 episode bim, bam, boom things. They didn't cost as much money to make. They didn't have to be as popular. And so you started getting weirder, more, you know, interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, and I was shocked. I mean, I know this show's been on forever. It's still running and, and whatever. But just like it blew my mind when I saw that this show started in 2005. The episode we're watching is from 2013 so a bit later. But, you know, the King of Queens episode that we watched is also from around, like, that same time, like 2004, 2005. I was just like, man, just to think that, like, the King of Queens and It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia kind of existed in the same time frame is, It's. I mean, I know that's true, but also it's, like, weird in my head.
0: Yeah, well, because It's Always Sunny represents a much more modern Approach, I think, uh, for all the reasons I just said, and the way they make it, it's just so light on its feet, you know, like it's so clearly shot, you know, on simple digital video, and it's, it's the brainchild of the people that are in the show. So you just, it just has that vibe of like these three or four people just sat down and like banged it out, you know, and it doesn't have that feel of a network show, even if they were contemporaneous.
1: Absolutely. And this episode in particular, it's a season finale. So it's the season nine season finale. Like you're saying, there's only 10 episodes. It's their Thanksgiving episode. So they were doing those little like half season kind of things Mm -hmm. during this time which I I think they still kind of do, right? And the other thing is that it is... An episode for the fans Yes,
0: this is very much It's not a clip show Because we don't really need those anymore In the streaming age But it's very much a, yeah Sort of fan service review Of some of the the favorite supporting characters And sort of, uh, you know Almost like an Avengers Infinity War Of it's always sunny weirdos
1: Right, And but what's interesting though Is that it's not even the best ones It's all like the sort of mini ones, you know? Well, that's that's a matter of taste. We got Cricket, but he's not even arguably the, the person who has the biggest beef with the gang over the, you know, at least a lot of the first... Chunk of this 20 some year, you know, juggernaut is cricket. You know, the, he starts out as a, a minister yeah. or a priest or something when the, he first kind of gets in contact with the gang and then he becomes like a drug addict and homeless and a meth head. And he's injured every single time they, you know, get involved with him. But he shows up at the uh, beef quashing, squashing Thanksgiving and they're not even trying to squash beef with him and he's like well if you just let me eat I'll consider it squashed you know and so that's like the joke there so the, the, yeah. but the rest of them are kind of like sort of minor uh, little things that have happened throughout this like most recent season right. and the one well, before
0: so Jimmy Simpson is that McBoyle McPoyle brother yeah. and uh, the other guy yeah they're in a bunch of episodes they reference in this one the one where they're at the wedding and they they eat the, the something poisonous that turns them all into zombies. Bath salts. They bath put bath salts, salts, right? salts
1: in the uh, in the punch, and right. then the guy who put the bath salts in the punch. Because one of them was gonna marry like his sister or something, and that's what happened. So he ends up getting invited. So the way it starts out is that Frank and Charlie. So okay, we've we've never covered this show before. No. This is such a crazy show. So this is another one of these shows that's like Seinfeld. You got a group of friends, they kind of own a bar and run a bar. Uh, you got Danny DeVito and Charlie Day and Glenn Howerton, Rob McElhenney, and Caitlin. Olson, and those are the the main characters, and so Charlie and Danny DeVito's character Frank live together, and they're I don't know, like they're sort of like mangy mutt yeah, people, weird codependent. <laughs> yeah, it does,
0: yeah the, the whole point is it's yeah they're they're friends that own a bar together. You right, know? they're at the core of every episode, and it's like I said, it's light on its feet. They kind of do whatever they want from show to show. It's not. It's not, you know, grounded in any... uh, It's not like a traditional sitcom.
1: No, it definitely is not. Well, so Charlie and Frank are having a beef with the landlord. Dee went to go get subs for everybody, sub sub sandwiches, and she can't go to the Wawa anymore because her cousin works at the Wawa and won't serve her, so she can't get good subs. She has to get the subs from the gas station. So that's messing up their, their world. And then the two brothers that you said, like Jimmy Simpson, Um's character and his the his McPoyle brother they now own a video store yeah. and so um ban them from the videos Dennis and Matt go to get a video rent a video the director's cut of thunder or something which is another callback to a, an yeah. earlier episode and they can't rent the video they cut up their card because now these yeah. brothers who they have beef with <laughs> there's own the video also store.
0: there's An ongoing joke because, first of all, second eye patch into sitcoms. Jimmy Simpson has an eye patch. And there's this ongoing joke where he has horrible depth perception. So he's trying to cut up his membership card, but he's putting the scissors like two feet away from where the card is because he can only, he only has one eye. The best one
1: of those gags is when he goes to sit down on the bed and totally misses the bed and falls in between the bed and the wall. Like, I have so done that like thought I was over a chair or thought I was over- and fallen like that and he just he and you, you see the whole thing Like you, you A lot of times in, in shows like this You know They fall behind something And so there's like A mattress there Or a little pad There yeah. for them No This guy like He busts his ass On the hardwood floor And you watch The whole thing happen And it is very funny
0: Yeah you No know, this guy is really good Jimmy Simpson at this time Was like exploding Like yeah. he was showing up In little parts In every prestige show He had a big part In that Westworld show He would be in movies All the time As just this real Really reliable, often like scummy guy. Yeah, he's just, he
1: plays that like he plays that sort of like meth head kind of. It's because cr- it's his like, face. Trailer I, park
0: weasel, really I well. I hate to say it, but it's because he's a really, really talented actor. But his face, there's just something about it that he you're not going to put him in the leading man role. You got it put him in the skeevy guy role yeah but but anyway yeah so they've got their beef with him and so this is you know classic it's always sunny format which is that they just sort of arbitrarily oftentimes dennis is the one to just sort of arbitrarily declare their goal you know or their he sort of announces their intention you know we're gonna squash the beefs and then you cut to the the theme music right you know and that's the sort of defining aspect of this this whole gang is the, like the way that they go on their own momentum and they never question themselves. It's always like, we're going to do it. And it's this straight line. And Mac, especially, like never really questions what, what Dennis wants to do. Or if he does, he's very easily sort of redirected. And this is one of those times.
1: Yeah, well, and Dennis is a full-on psychopath. Yes. Which just... It it makes me laugh how that is woven into every single episode in in a way that it's like, if you don't know you're looking for it, like, you just miss it. But then you're like, wait a
0: minute. Well, sometimes it's not subtle.
1: No, sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes they're trying to say, like, look at him. He's a psychopath. But, like, in this one... It's not there, He yeah. just he's taking charge. He com- wants people to sign a legal document saying that the beef is squashed. But not apologize, not own up to anything, not actually have a conversation about said beef. Just here, I'm going to ask you to sign this document, and the gang is like, "Why do you always want people to sign a legal document?" And yeah. he's like, "Because then I have the power, and I can no one can stop me."
0: Yeah, like, and what? it's, <laughs> it's just—it's such a fun like tone and pitch that this show is at that it's like what what do you mean legal document like where did you get this how would you enforce it like they're just it's almost like watching the muppets have a conversation where it's like they're in their own little world and you know like they they pull little pieces from reality but they don't really know what they're talking about and It's, again, like like the Muppets, they often don't leave the world. Sometimes they do. But in a case like this, you know, when we get to the actual Thanksgiving where they want all the beasts to be squashed, and it, it looks like... It looks like an AA meeting. It's like folding tables and chairs and little little foils.
1: Solo cups. Right. <laughs> and
0: everybody that's showing up to this thing is like one of their weird scummy characters. You right. know? It's it's their landlord that's in a beef with Frank and all the other people you described. So it's like nobody's normal in this. So all of their weird like petitioning and stuff and negotiating and everything it it's like this weird world where they all sort of buy into it.
1: Yes. And 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 so and then also all of the beefs sort of somehow overlap. Yeah. Right? Like it's all the shit that they've done throughout the last season or so just like you said kind of blindly sort of going along that every decision one of them makes is the right decision even though they're terrible people. Yeah. And so like they have legitimately hurt and ruined the lives of everyone in the room, but most of the people in the room are also pretty
0: awful themselves. So well, it's also this this characterization where like nobody really gives a shit about anything in this world you know except like, for themselves yeah and so I've, it's one of these things where even though all the characters are distinct and fully realized there's also just aspects to the whole tone of the show to the whole world that are like sort of uniformly quirky and i feel like that's kind of what you're getting at that All of a sudden, all of the beefs start being resolved in these like weirdly sort of easy and convenient ways or almost like unintentional ways sometimes. And it's just like, oh, okay, you know, it starts. I think this happens a lot on the show, too, where things start getting away from Dennis and people start going like, oh, cool, I like this. And he's like, no, wait, that's not how it's supposed to be
1: because it's not the way I wanted it to be. So so the it descends into a food fight. Oh, yeah. Right? But before we get to the food fight, everybody, except for Dennis, Dennis' whole thing is everybody needs to sign the legal document. But the rest of the cast has a way that the beef is going to be squashed. So Charlie makes squash and beef right. for the meal. That's his way of having the beef get squashed. Dee has a cheese board slate that she's going to wipe clean mac has a pail of sand and a hatchet so that they can bury the hatchet yeah
0: it's like one of those rebus puzzles is that what they called it from when you were a little kid where it would be like i (laughs) see you and it's like a picture of an i and a c or something (laughs) yeah they're all taking everything very literally but then these, these props that they've brought, you know, end up when everything starts descending into chaos later and people start fighting at the table, Cricket gets the, the axe thrown <laughs> into his arm. In his arm, because yeah.
1: he always gets injured every time. Yeah. There's, yeah, they, Mac and, and Dennis try to um, buy somebody's eye so they can give it to yeah. the McPoyle brothers and not have to say they're sorry, but just like replace the eye that got lost.
0: Right. He's painted a fake eye onto his eye patch, which isn't even
1: an eye patch. It's like a piece of moleskin that he's put over his eye that is like flesh Flesh colored. colored, So it is so creepy. And, And then, of course, you know, he's such a funny actor, like he purposefully will look at the camera in such a way where like his you know, the one eye that's drawn on is looking in one direction and he's yes. looking in the other. So it's very off putting. Yeah, he
0: looks like Mad Eye Moody when he's look he's darting his one real eye, you but know, not, in both like, directions. but not like but
1: like a low rent creepy Mad Eye Moody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But yeah, like we said, everything starts descending into chaos. There's cocaine involved. Someone whips out the cocaine and and Frank goes, Oh, I'll take some of those tasty nose clams. That was a great <laughs> yes, line. That's- So yeah, the cocaine gives way to the food fight. The food fight gives way to the axe throwing, and it just gets crazier and crazier. And uh, Mac discovers that his bedroom is on fire.
1: Right. They go to uh, hide out in the bedroom from the food fight. They try to escape because they're like, all our beefs are are getting in beef with each other. We've just better extract ourselves from the situation. So they go to hide in uh, Mac's room. But Frank has had, he's been having this staring contest with his landlord who is there that he has beef with, and they try to. The agreement that Charlie brokers is, you know, we'll pay you half the rent now if you, and then you fix the heat, and we'll pay you the rest of the rent. And Frank, Danny DeVito's character, is like, I'd rather watch the rent burn than give you a cent until you fix the heat. And so he pulls out this wad of money and sets yeah, it on fire. It. And so he says to he says to Mac. Uh, I may have started a money fire in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So his bedroom's on fire so they sneak out of the apartment and lock it from the outside like bolt it shut.
1: Uh, they sneak out of the apartment. Dennis grabs a drill and nails yeah. and nails them in. Na- or sorry, screw Na- uh, and screws the door shut so they can't get out. Right.
0: But he does explain there's a fire escape. We're not killing them.
1: Well, no, because his <laughs> friends are like, uh, Dennis, this, uh, this is bad. Like, you know, murder and he's like, "Ah, oh, there's a fire escape and uh, it'll be fine. Yeah. so We're yeah, just buying some time to get to the bar and away from them.
0: <laughs> and so ironically, you know, given the the reputation and everything of this show, It's Always Sunny, I think, has the most sentimental ending of all of these. Uh, no, they're, the,
1: they're like, well, we didn't really squash any beef. And they're like, but we learned a valuable lesson, kids. Well, and that was, we can only rely on each other.
0: Yeah, what he says, Frank says... We don't need to get along with anyone else. We have each other. And so, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, why bother squashing our beefs? Let's just, you know, we, we have each other. That's all we need. And, Let's continue
1: uh, to make other people's lives miserable because we're fine. <laughs>
0: yeah, but I mean, I will say of, of all four episodes, that's the only one that even attempted some sort of human sort of touching moment like that. Right, but
1: again, but they subverted it, right? They did the other way than you would normally think.
0: Yeah, but it's almost, in this case... I feel like it's almost the opposite of the usual where they're they're subverting all of the chaos and nihilism with a little bit of sentimentality yeah. I think. So yeah, I don't know, looking back over these like I said, you know they all kind of have that like a little bit of a a little bit of a nasty streak, like a little bit of a kind of antisocial, you know, none of these are touchy-feely family Thanksgiving You know, experiences
1: But Uh, they're all shows that people really liked You know, these are, I mean These are all highly rated episodes, you know And I was really excited and interested in um, seeing WKRP in Cincinnati I thought that was, you know, that was really funny Like I said, that one was a grower for me Like as the day, you know, the couple days have gone by since we watched it I think it gets funnier in my mind And just because of the I'm having more time to imagine what they were describing happening off camera, and it just kind of gets funnier in my imagination. But yeah, and the Always Sunny episode, I remember watching that back when I was watching the show all the time, and I thought that was hilarious because they brought back all these people, and it was a fan, you know, it was an episode for the fans. So I think those two probably were my favorite.
0: Yeah, I think WKRP sort of takes it in terms of the you know just the brilliance of that part and yeah just sort of like weirdly establishing itself in like sitcom history with that one little two minute sequence you can't really beat that i do like you know like i said the king of queens uh reminds me of that ray romano thing where you know if i'm looking to sitcoms for just a little bit of like you know when i was a kid I wanted to see stuff about teenagers and their dating lives and stuff. And so it's like, now, if I want to see, you know, little reflections of the kind of, of issues that, that people deal with the fact that those shows show you, you know, this relationship with the man and the woman having different, you know, having these different angles on an issue and seeing the, them play out in a relatively reasonable way. Like I, I liked that both times. I liked the Ray and Deborah argument about the bully. And I liked this argument about whether we let in the stranger. You know, I like that sort of like, huh, what do we do here? There really are two sides to it.
1: You are begun- becoming a boring middle-aged <laughs> man.
0: And then, yeah, I mean, look, again, the Seinfeld and the It's Always Sunny. I mean, they're both classics just from what they are. I'd seen both of those episodes multiple times. I'm sure I'll watch them again before my life is through. Uh, you know, <laughs> they're, they're just, they're classics.
1: And I think that now that we've watched the WKRP in Cincinnati episode, we should go out and get the t-shirt because there's a famous t-shirt that is sold that says, I survived the turkey drop <laughs> of Cincinnati. Cincinnati, 1978 all right <laughs> we'll be on the lookout
0: all right so much for Thanksgiving what are we talking about next week
1: next week we're gonna have the best episode ever I mean the best episode ever Jay
0: please explain
1: <laughs> we are covering pill addictions welcome back Cotter season three episode 22 what goes up family ties season two episode six speed trap Saved by the Bell, Season 2, Episode 9, Jesse's Song. And finally, Family Matters, Season 7, Episode 14, Life in the Fast Lane on Diet Pills, Caffeine Pills. Woo!
0: Yeah, this is a pretty important juncture. To be clear, Jesse's song is the I'm So Excited episode of Saved by the Bell, one of the most significant and important episodes of television uh, to come out in our lifetimes. And so that's next week, and until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog.